Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> what was that? Helcom? Whatever. Um, <clears throat> anyone here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay, those of you who are here for the very first time, are you also really new to, to this style of practice? Could I have a show of hands again? Okay, so the, the other, others who have not raised their hand, you've had meditation experience just elsewhere. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps a source of confusion. How many of you, or did any of you, come especially to hear a talk on uh, on this king? You did. In other words, you wouldn't be here otherwise. Oh, I'd be here. Oh, okay. I just want, anyone else just came especially for that? Zero? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> because that um, that decision, that title almost a year ago it was put in and on the on the internet uh, I changed it to engage stillness but I'll tell you what I'll see if I can smuggle him in a little bit <laughs> just uh, because what I'm talking about the beginnings of it and as we unfold this evening is so general such an underlying dimension that of course it would include uh, it was basically about an overweight king uh, <clears throat> who was really overweight and, of course, when the Buddha got through with him, not only did he lose weight, but he wised up. So it was a bargain. You lose weight. If you do the practice, you can use the practice. So it's a new diet approach <laughs> because we don't have enough of them already. Uh, but it's really using wisdom. Um, that's really it. Maybe I don't have to go into it. <laughs> we'll see. Um, <clears throat> The title of Engaged Stillness came about through a, 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 an interaction with somebody who not, didn't know uh, the center very well, but got to find out that our teaching here is very concerned with uh, daily life and said, well, isn't that, that's engaged Buddhism. Uh, and it isn't. How many of you have heard of engaged Buddhism? A show of hands. Yeah. Um, that's bringing the Dharma actively into the world, and often it has a political uh, edge to it. That is, and it's not that I'm against that, it's just that I'm against it for here. Or certainly when I teach, and I'll give you the reason why. So I, in other words, in correcting him, I said, well, you might say I'm concerned with engaged stillness, but not engaged Buddhism. Um, when it gets, uh, see, I feel everyone should be welcome here. The Buddhist teaching is about human liberation. It's not about liberation only for those who vote for candidate X. Uh, and when the uh, when the decision was made to invade Iraq, um, there was someone in our community who was very irate. There are a couple of people who sent notes to us, saying that anyone there are some people, uh, I guess, in certain discussion groups, uh, voiced their approval of invading Iraq, and this person felt. They shouldn't be allowed to be members of the center or even come to the center. And I had to go through a whole 10 or 15 minute disavowing that's exactly what we don't want. Uh, I'm not saying there can't be limits, if so, you know, in certain kinds of uh, ideas which are very destructive, violent, and so forth. But we want this place, and I would say every, every monastery that I've practiced or every meditation center, worth its Salt, I don't know what, I guess I do know what it means. 
Salt is very important. Um, it's, it's welcoming to everyone. And so uh, we, we don't want to know you. It doesn't mean that I don't have a political view or that, or that I don't care. I do. But I don't want it to affect what goes on here uh, in terms of when people come in. So it isn't engaged Buddhism in that sense. Uh, in another sense, I don't think the word Buddhism is correct. There's, it, it, Buddhism, I have to use, it's not an ism. When the Buddha taught, he taught it as a dharma, which is not an ism. It's not an ideology. It's not a, just a belief system or something that you have faith in. Faith is part of it, but it's, a, it's a rather different. So um, <clears throat> I know it's maybe a petty point, but for some of you who may uh, have read the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and others, not as well known, uh, it's not that I'm against what they're doing, because Thich Nhat Hanh is uh, very good at being able to keep the boundaries clear. But I have had met people who have, are not. And the first casualty, of course, is the contemplative life. There's, the only thing that's really unique about the Buddhist teaching is the, is the contemplative life. If you neglect meditation, I mean real meditation, then it's still, okay, it's still good. It's like every other religion or popular religion, organized religion. What's distinctive about the Buddhist teaching is that, it, that has, what has been protected for all these uh, 2,500 years or more, really, uh, has been a whole approach in a sense of technology, an inner technology, that is available to us and that is being used by people here in a different culture, different time. And, and as those of you have attempted to do it or are doing it, you know it takes energy and it takes time and commitment. Uh, and it's designed to free the mind of all kinds of uh, sources of distortion. Uh, it doesn't, so we're not saying uh, it has, your political view is your own, that's your business unless your view is some form of fascism where all Buddhists should be destroyed or all Muslims or Jews or whatever group you want to pick up, then, then we have to engage in that because that is a different matter altogether. But, um, okay, I can see it doesn't matter to you. <laughs> you don't care about the king, the overweight king, you don't care, about, except you do, all right. Um, <clears throat> I... <clears throat> Change the, the subject to engage stillness because, as I say, the choice of that sutra was made a long, long time ago, and I'm uh, very interested in this. Uh, I would say this is uh, finally, when fully understood, a stillness, that is. It's the most profound aspect of what the Buddha is teaching, but we start very close. We you begin this journey right where you are and exactly as you are. Uh, but the and stillness will change as your practice changes. However, what I want to do is, first of all, give some hints. This will take more than one talk. I know that. Now, some of you have been around for a while. Uh, when we first, a few years after starting the center, I thought I would, it would just take a few talks to talk about Give, to clarify what the Anapanasati Sutra is. That's the breath of aware, full awareness of breathing. Uh, I thought two or three talks ought to be enough for it. Forty talks later, I finished. Uh, another one on aging, sickness, and death. I thought, well, two talks, three talks. That one took about a year. 
uh, I've just finished a few years on self-knowing and learning how to live. So I don't know where this will go. I mean, I'm not – so I want to build from week to week. But I hope I can – and especially for those of you new, um, start where I think you can grasp it, even if you've had no medita- exposure to meditation. And language is so central in all this because even the word meditation – People have such different attribute such different meanings to it that we're not talking about the same thing. It's really more accurate would be contemplation, because meditation. If you look it up in the dictionary, you see it's measure has to do with measure. Contemplation is something else. Um, In the West, we've been very, very good. You might say ingenious at being concerned with measuring. That's the Greeks, and uh, look at the benefits that have come from all of that. Technologies, well, science, technology, uh, tremendously helpful for for the human race. In the ancient teachings, especially in Asia, the concern was for what that which was immeasurable. They were concerned, this is not new. It's treated as if it's something new. It isn't. There have always been people who have explored the depths of the human heart. And what, and the thought is not the deepest part, the productions of the mind, image-making, thoughts, like even emotions. And so this is not new. Uh, and uh, once you, you have to start somewhere. And the Buddha leaves us with a technology which enables the mind to be able to go on this journey if you want to go on it. Okay, I also, to begin with, want to disinfect a certain term, which I think is a very beautiful term, but has been misused since the Korean War. I think that's when it started. Uh, The term brainwashing, because apparently there have been, uh, we know that there have been soldiers who were captured by the communist Chinese, Korean communists, who brainwashed soldiers, in other words, um, uh, turned them into having views that weren't their own. You all know that the, what it have been films made about it, brainwashing. But if you can disinfect your own mind for the moment, just hear the term. It's a very beautiful term, brainwashing. It's, it's extraordinary. It's beautiful. Could we, if we could, could we really wash the brain clear of all the stuff that's in there? Yes. It's a, it's a very beautiful term for what we're talking about. It, the other should probably have been called brain shaping, brain coloring, brain manipulation, something else, but it is not brain washing. So uh, in a sense, there are many poisons. In the, in the Tibetan teachings, they put the kilesas, greed, hatred, and delusion. They call them the three poisons. I think it's a good term for it, the three toxins. And this is a way of cleansing the mind of those toxins, of those ways of viewing life, of inhabiting the present moment that turn out to be uh, most destructive. It doesn't work. And yet generation after generation, we keep repeating it over and over again. Um, So let's start with the word stillness or silence. It's sometimes called other words. It's called emptiness. Really, in English, there's no word that does, adjust, uh, ju- does the word shunyata justice. The, 
uh, sometimes translated as void. I think that's not very good. It's like null and void, the legal term, null and void, which certainly this isn't, quite the contrary. Uh, so we have to do the best we can. Um, I, we'll hint at that tonight. I'm gonna, what I hope to do in however long this takes tonight and subsequent evenings is uh, keep building on it until you see the simplicity of it, especially seeing its relevance in your own mind, because this is about us. It's not some abstract, philosophic, uh, an evening, a seminar or something, which could be useful as well. But it isn't. It's about our, our, our mind and our heart. And as I speak, I hope you're reflecting and to see if it's, if it's true. I'm saying it is about you. Uh, the, the whole practice is about you, frankly, because if you take care of you, then you're going to be a better able to take care of me. And if I take care of me, I'll be better company for you. If we all did that, it would be a different planet. We're not doing it. If you don't take care of yourself, then that's what you bring to life. One, uh, pra one place where I practiced, when you got there, there was a sign that said, hey, you there, what are you gawking at? Don't you know this is about you? I felt like, wow, what a way to enter a monastery, but all right. <laughs> Turns out it's true. Okay, um, let's take stillness. Our culture uh, doesn't really, we have a limited and a, a specialized view of what stillness or silence is. Uh, there are some cultures which have a, a, a deep reverence for stillness. Uh, I've just, uh, I did a little bit of socio-historical or sociological, a little bit of it. For example, in certain, uh, certain Mongolian tribes, uh, they have tremendous respect for silence from childhood on. And often, uh, I know uh, I, my wife is Russian, so I've met people who served in the Soviet Union. And he would say, at first we had such a hard time with the Mongolians who fought, were part of the Soviet Union, those who. He said, when we realized they were very alert and intelligent, they knew exactly what was going on, it's just there wasn't one extra word. Well, clearly, I'm not a Mongolian, as you can tell. <laughs> but it could be worse. If, uh, okay, no, I think meditation has made me more of a blabbermouth, frankly. <laughs> um, also, certain Native American tribes, tremendous appreciation for silence. Uh, not that you don't speak. It's not training and being mute. It's just that you appreciate uh, because the s silence allows a certain contact it enables you to inhabit the present moment in a way that's not possible if the mind is constantly, very, very often, preoccupied with what's to come or what was, and then uh, not understanding that and thinking that we're living, and yet we're inhabiting the present moment. Everyone is. That's the only pl place to inhabit, but it's as if we're not there. We're not here. So um, we do value stillness here, but let, let me give you a few examples. Uh, let's say, um, uh, okay, just start at, uh, humble examples. Uh, for those, you, I don't know if you have, uh, let's say, washing machines or refrigerators that kind of chug along and make a lot of sound. Uh, we have one. And when it stops, it's a nice feeling. Oh, it's kind of outer, outer stillness. Or let's say if, 
Uh, children, those who have children, have had children, and TV is blaring all day long. Suddenly they go to sleep, and the TV set is off, and suddenly, oh, it's, uh, people notice that there's something nice about it. This is just outer stillness. We're still at very, very superficial level. The superficial here meaning not just descriptive. It's just the surface meaning of it. Um, so there are many, many examples of this kind of stillness which we appreciate, living on a quiet street, taking our vacations and going to places that are still and appreciating a break from all the hustle and bustle. So, of course, we appreciate some silence. And even now and then, uh, finally, not talking, just having a few moments for ourselves and so forth. And we vary on that. Um, I was very, very drawn to silence. It was not a, as a child. And my parents worried about me. Just, and it's not that I'm unique. Uh, that I would, could play by myself. And we didn't have all this proliferation of toys then. It was a long time ago. Uh, I could, we had, it was coal heated. It was the Lower East Side of New York. And I could play with lumps of coal for hours, I was told. I don't remember. Under the kitchen table. You know, rearranging them. Seems kind of stupid, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> Uh, and then my parents worried, but then they realized, well, when she, they got the report card once I started going to school, it says, plays well with others. You know that one? <laughs> so it seems I was able to play well with others. And when I wasn't playing well with others, I really did enjoy just being silent and being uh, whatever that was about. So we're getting a little closer. Let's say you come into this, you approach the center. That fence that's around the center it wasn't here to begin with. This was an old, dilapidated house that was up. It was uh, totally neglected. It was water was coming in through the roof. It was you wouldn't recognize. It was then and now. Uh, there's no no there's no recognition. It's like a totally different place. We've put a lot of years and work into making it like a nice place. So the fence was one of the members of the sangha at that time was an architect who'd spent time in Japan. It's a very simplified model of the fence around the emperor's palace. With, uh, now, when we first put it up, the people in uh, at, city, at City Hall, were, I was called to City Hall because uh, they were furious. They felt like uh, this, is, this is an old, uh, old house and uh, this is exclusive, keeping people out and saying, that's not its intent at all. Everyone's welcome. It's a public place. It's open. It's just, it's just having a temperate, like an oasis, a place where you can temporarily leave the cement and all the cars and ambulances and police sirens and hustle and bustle. And we hope this fence begins the journey of still helping to still the mind. Then let's say you come in and we try to keep the place clean and still, all of which in a small way, relatively speaking, small way, contributes to it. Now, some of you who are new, maybe some of you who are here, uh, we used to get complaints that people here are cold. They weren't used to a culture of silence. So they would come in and they would interpret the fact that there was stillness was emphasized in sitting, in retreats, and so forth. We also do talk. you know, But people would see that and feel very uneasy and interpret that as coldness. And it took away, and many people wouldn't come back, or they'd lodge that complaint seriously. We've got notes to the office. Um, but those who stuck it out realized it wasn't coldness at all. It was an attempt to, from an outer point of view, you've come in. There's a garden. I forgot that. The garden is, opposed, is an attempt also to help soothe the mind. These are external 
supports, in a way, to help calm down, to enter a situation that we hope provides you with a safe place where you can put into practice something that you can then bring out into your active life and then come back here and, and then finally not need us so much or be able to do it at home and also do it on your own. Um, so they said that, and I explained to them that the purpose is not to exclude people. If you read carefully, it's an open invitation to anyone to come in. It's more once you come in, it's to provide a haven, a place where people can uh, take shelter and temporarily give their overworked, over-everything mind a break. Then as you come in, I hope we keep the place, we try to keep it clean and attractive, uh, also contributing to that. Um, but that's rather limited. It's outer silence. Then let's say we move more closely into the mind, and you'll see people who are sitting in meditation. Let's say you, many, I don't know if some of you weren't here for the sitting, but you've been sitting. Uh, you just sat for, what, 45 minutes or so? And if someone walked in, they would say, wow, these people are really quiet. Well, not necessarily. We don't know what's going on inside your head. You could, there could be a ferocious civil war going on inside, and you have a beatific look on your face, you know. But we're not a statue. We're people. That's a statue. I don't know if I have to remind you of that, you know. It's not a person. They grind them out by the thousands, especially for American tourists. Now I think for Chinese tourists. But anyway, for some tourists. Um, so the mind is very, very, now we're getting to a more subtle form of noise, if you want to call it. Noise uh, uh, has a derogatory term. It is also a scientific term. can be used that way. But what I mean is um, it's unpleasant. And often we, we don't even realize how wild the mind is until you come here. Those of you new know that when you try to do this for the first time, it's very discouraging. I don't know anyone who skips that step because you might have a highly responsible job, brain surgeon, attorney, whatever your work is, whatever your life is like, and be extremely concentrated in the arts or in cooking, dance, whatever it is, anything. And yet you come here and you sit with yourself, and the mind is uh, an ancient Indian image of a drunken monkey uh, running, jumping from one branch to another, forever seeking bigger and better coconuts. You know, it just keeps going. No, okay, now, we, if you don't sit down and, and you hear the instructions, relax. You know how we talk here, right? Like disc jockeys, you know, relax. <laughs> Allow the, just your body to relax. Become aware of any tension in the body. Let the breathing, breath happen naturally if you're starting with the breath. And if you're doing metta, it's all delivered in a way to try to help us settle down. But what you see is those are nice uh, intentions and guide, uh, words of guidance. But when you look in your own mind, uh, it's a torrent of the brain is constantly uh, secreting worries and conflicts and old memories and unresolved duties and what you have to do and what you should have done and what you should have said and why you didn't say it. And, uh, and you're worthwhile and you're worthless and you're a wonderful person. You're a horrible grandfather. And you're, no, you're a wonderful but Their children love me. No, they don't. They, they never come over to visit. You know, uh, it's just all there. Our whole history is there. It's pouring out. And we believe in it. 
because we're not trained. We're taken in by, yes, I am. I'm a horrible person. No, you're not. You're a wonderful person. That's right. I am a wonderful person. Well, which is it? How about none of them? Hey, so uh, that's where we start. And so uh, to get ahead of ourselves, the engaged, what, engaged stillness, what we're going to get to, but a few hints I think might put this in context, is when you talk about stillness or silence, um, people often think that you're divorced from daily life, that meditation is a way of, well, temporarily when we do formal meditation, this style of meditation is a way, is a way of life. It's not just a bunch of techniques and that only work in special places that are spiritual and that are in the country with birds chirping and squirrels running around. Uh, we need these places uh, as, because we need all the help we can get in terms of techniques, teachers, encouragement, clean buildings, uh, nice grab, flowers growing, fences, you know, whatever it takes to try to help coax this mind into uh, little by little just uh, observing and, uh, and actually enjoying the process of learning. It's a form of learning. You're learning about yourself. Well, this isn't about myself. Uh, I want to find out my psychological. This is good. Who's, it? Who's it about? Whose mind is it about? I guess it is about. In other words, my mind is this wild? Afraid so. So we, I think I don't know anyone yet. And I've listened to I, many, many people over all these years of teaching who doesn't start that way. And it was very reassuring reading ancient texts from ancient India. They had the same problem. They didn't have all these computers and texting and uh, Facebook and, you know, which we'll get to that in a moment because I think we, <laughs> I don't see how we can escape that uh, since talk about uh, distraction, talk about uh, multitasking, and we're trying to learn how to calm the mind. Well, You'll see in a moment that I'm not going to, you don't have to get, uh, sell your computer or give it away. It's fine. Just we have to learn how to use these uh, magnificent scientific and technological achievements, accomplishments. Um, so there are methods. For example, one is the breath. That's the one I know best. And it's, it's simple and natural. It's as close to just being yourself as we can get. All the methods are attempts to Learn how to be in the present moment. How to learn how to be in the present moment. Now, to begin with, it's very helpful to do it under protected conditions, like here, and like agreements for all of us to do it together because we support one another. We need each other to begin with. Most of us do. At a certain point, you may not. But it's helpful to look around and see that other people are still here or just know that they're here. And little by little, techniques and teachers who already started this and been through more than you have, let's say, because they've been at it longer, uh, suggesting, oh, yeah, that's what happened, and this is what, you, this is what you might do. And little by little, understanding this is a form of learning that actually, if you do it, it works. It's been going on for thousands of years. Nothing mysterious or mystical. You do not have to become a monk or a nun. You don't have to go to Thailand or Burma or wherever you think the truth is somehow or real compassion is. It's in the Himalayas. I don't think so. <laughs> I practice in many monasteries. You know what? I learned one of the things I learned. They're inhabited by human beings. Did you know that? But when you come there at first, you have an idealistic view. People, uh, you don't see them as persons. 
who have made a special commitment, have special clothing and rules that they've voluntarily agreed to abide by. And I'm not against that. It's just no guarantee of anything. Okay. So what a, what this is going to do, where we're going to go, is we're going to start where we are, and then I don't know how far we'll get this evening, but I can tell you where it's going to go. It's called, I'm calling it engaged stillness, because the whole point is to make it clear that it isn't a way of separating yourself from life. Wow, anyone even further back than that? <laughs> how, my neck only has limits. I can't. Don't be insulted if you don't, we're not making eye contact. Okay. These days, you never know. People. Are... Okay. <laughs> Good one. Good one. He's too fast for me. All right. <laughs> um, I have the early stages of senility. Where was I? What? Where's what going? <laughs> What? Yes. No, I, that one I... <laughs> uh, what I'm attempting to, to... First of all, you can develop extraordinary stillness. And a lot of that is best accomplished in protected settings in uh, something like here and so many other places. It's an ancient form. It's way before the Buddha. This has been going on since Vedic times in India. There are ancient archaeological ruins of people in yogic postures meditative postures. The Buddha built on ancient Indian culture, and he dropped a lot of things out and added some other thing, innovations and so forth. And it's happening, it's been happening for a few thousand years. If you go to China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, it's always taken on a cultural twist, and it's happening here as well. It has to. So um, what, uh, where we're going to get to is, uh, I hope I can suggest to you, and then for you to, the only way you'll find out if what I'm saying is fanciful or true is by practice, is that stillness, inner stillness, is not dependent, finally, upon where you are. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. In fact, this kind of stillness that we'll be getting at, and we're not there yet, not even in just a little bit in words, um, it's already here. It's not something that you import from somewhere. It's not something that you cultivate and develop. That will prevent you from being in touch with it. All the stillness and inner peace that we could ever want is already here. Then how come I feel so? Because we're, we've n narrowly defined what life is. We've given over authority to mainly thinking, doing, running, jumping, skipping, creating things, banging, high sawing, piling things up, running over here. You know, <laughs> you know, this is what real life is. And, uh, when the culture has not understood the need for the contemplative dimension has been neglected, and a growing number of people are realizing that we have outer opulence to culture, not just America now. That's extraordinary, extraordinary. If you just think about it, and inner poverty, paupers. We're speaking in general, nothing personal. Don't get insulted. Me too. Inward, an inner poverty, undeveloped, not because we don't have the capacity, but because. That hasn't been something that we've, the culture has valued. Even in Asia now, it isn't. Because the Asians want to get to where they think we are and get to be as happy as they think we are. 
And so busloads of Koreans and, you know, everyone's showing up to see Harvard and get a picture of them at Harvard. Well, I hope they get admitted to Harvard and MIT, and then they'll find out that, too, is inhabited by human beings. <laughs> In fact, wherever you go, you're going to find people are doing all this. And as a race, the human race, that is, we are not at peace. So what I'm saying is uh, the, where we're going to go for however long it takes is the development of how this inner, uh, this stillness or silence or emptiness uh, is not reserved, first of all, for any particular. It's not just reserved for uh, mystics who live high up in the Himalayas and just have one grain of uh, rice a day and who just in freezing cold have just a loincloth or stand on one leg for 10 years. It's not for, or it's not about, it's, in other words, it's part of the human constitution. This, this space and stillness that fills it. And there's something in that stillness. It's not dead. It's not a vacuity. It's not uh, a vacant gaze. It's, it's not that you're, you're, it's teeming with life. It's a subtle kind of life. And that this can, this is, can be more and more the practice becomes living with that and bringing that into relationship, into work, into family life, into whatever, whatever your life is like. It's not, so it's, uh, now, what we've been learning how to do, whether you call it nirvana or my original nature or Buddha nature, there are a lot of different words for it. But what I'm saying is it's something that is in our nature. It's already here, but it's obscured. It's obscured by all of our many preoccupations, which we are so wedded to and has been so powerfully conditioned. Each one of us, in a sense, is the history of the human race. We have it all conditioned into our brain, different versions of it, depending on your particular line of where you've come from and so forth. But it's all in there. If you want to be a little more modest, it, you know, you got it from your parents, who got it from their parents, and it's been going back. Okay, that's fine. That isn't necessarily the problem. But We've been living with those productions, modifying it, of course, and we don't know there's anything else. And so we're always trying to fix things by getting more stuff externally. And even internally, I would still call it stuff. If we accumulate more knowledge, we'll be happier. If we get more degrees, we'll be happier. I'm not against degrees or knowledge. Now let's get to the computer. Uh, and all those, I don't know what to call them. I, I gave up a long time ago. People, you know, I used to think when I'd walk along the street and I, someone was speaking, I thought I would turn around being somewhat self-centered. I thought, you know, oh, someone wants me. Or I thought, like, oh, no, someone from CIMC. Can't I have any peace at all? You know, I'm sorry. I, I'm cursed with being honest. But anyway, uh, I turn around and the person wasn't speaking to me. So I thought, it's mental illness. <laughs> it took a while for me to get comfortable. Now it's gone the other way, where people try to get my attention, and I don't turn around. They could even call Larry, Larry, I don't listen, because I assume it's somebody with talking into some, or, you know, something in here, or I don't, or no, it seems to be nowhere, and, it, you know, and they're having a, a, such a, a ball, just having a wonderful laughing and talking or putting someone down and... And uh, the ending, everyone ends the same way. Love you, you know, right. Everyone, love you, love you, right. Uh, <laughs> and everything is awesome and love you. Love you and awesome. Okay, so uh, 
but now what I've seen is that. Then you go into a cafe, and I still like cafes. One of my pleasures is a cup of tea in the New York Times and uh, a corn muffin or something like that. <laughs> I know, I'm still, what? No, I'm back to some kind of any. Okay, any muffin, blueberry, whatever you like. Uh, and what? And you, first of all, you can't get a table because you got people who they they pitch camp there. You know, it's like, are you homeless? I mean, what? what you know, it's like they have a computer and notebooks and a thermos and, you know, a basket. And, you know, they buy one little drink or something and then it entitles them to take up my seat for an hour and a half. And I'm waiting, you know, like looking. And then I spend a lot of time trying, if I'm going there with a friend, you know. And then the same, th- the same thing is going on as when I went on when I went to university. Uh, you, uh, you see people with their computer and they're either laughing <laughs> or deadly serious, you know, writing their thesis or... Can you see my face? <laughs> or they're laughing. Um, we did that too a hundred years ago when I went to college, but we did it with people. You know, we would have serious discussions and arguments about politics or this or that, or we'd make help each other to laugh and have a good time. This is going on, but it's each person with their own computer. <laughs> so, and it's going on a lot. So then you come here, uh, and this message is awfully strange. Now, my own prejudice, of, as if everything I've said so far is not an opinion, my own personal opinion even more of an opinion of what I've said, <laughs> is that uh, we're infatuated. We're drunk on this new te- technology. It is brilliant. I mean, I'm impressed, everyone. This is beyond the sci- scientific uh, science uh, fiction that when I was growing up, it's a re- and it's a reality. And it's extremely uh, helpful, and it in many ways uh, makes life wonderful. I mean, I use a computer. Uh, I don't take advantage of 90% of the things. I don't want a cell phone. I don't have one. Uh, it's because I do want to have some time where no one can get in touch with me. I don't want everyone get contacting me and me have to answer and you didn't answer, but why you know, well, I was, you know, I don't have to justify myself. I like to just take a walk and look at nature and just watch people or anything and not have to constantly be uh, busy answering and talking, and then I have a record. You, you know it better than I do. Okay, but it's here, and it is not going away. And if we're fortunate, I think it has to, because all innovations seem to go to some degree through this, the Industrial Revolution and so forth, at a certain point will calm down a bit. Now, in, a, in this sense, Dharma is needed more than ever. But it's not to eliminate technology or computers. It's to put it in its right place. I think some of that will just happen naturally. The honeymoon will be over in a while. Because I hear people, not me, people who use it saying, yeah, we're enslaved. It's, it's an addiction. I wish I could get out of it. Having to, And I just keep quiet because if they get me started, I know it is. And uh, now all these titles, attention deficit disorder, and then they, all these initials, I can't keep up with them. Uh, but they all seem, a lot of them seem to have to do with the inability to pay attention or to be scattered. I wonder why. You know, is it some disease or maybe if there, it could be, maybe there's a damaged brain, a, a neurological uh, 
dysfunction, sure. But it also seems to be people are talking a lot about having to juggle so many things at the same time. And here, the practice that I prefer, and I think all of us here, is to keep things simple and as natural as possible. Now, can the t- it's needed, I feel, and it's not that we have to eliminate all this incredible information that's available to us, but if we think that this information will save us from all the suffering, the human race, that is, uh, I think it's a huge mistake. We're not su- we never have been suffering from a lack of information. What we've been suffering for, from is a lack of wisdom and compassion. It's been underdeveloped. When I say wisdom, it includes compassion. How could there be real wisdom if there wasn't kindness in it and sensitivity to others? It has to. It's not wisdom otherwise. It's just dry in your head. Um, so at a certain, more and more people are getting interested in this stuff. I don't mean just see it all over. My friends tell me it's growing in Europe and there. I hear all kinds of little sanghas developing, and not just Buddhism, all kinds of non-sectarian and mindfulness-based stress reduction. People are wanting to do something about something that seems off internally. Okay, so our priorities are start, some people are then creating a rebellion against uh, thought is no good, technology is no good. Like during the Industrial Revolution, there were the Luddites. The Luddites, I don't know if you ever heard of them, but those who are a certain age and don't read social history. When the, the uh, machinery came in, it changed life dramatically, as this is, the computer. And people were put out suddenly who had flourished, were suddenly out of business. There's one poignant samurai film where these highly trained samurai, years of training in Zen, in meditation, in uh, martial arts, in ethics, in a noble code, uh, and all that has to happen is some hooligan with a gun just shoots him. No training. Just all you have to do is pull the trigger. They were out. They couldn't handle it. I mean, they were just killed. The film ends that way. So, but what happens is. To some degree, we have the opportunity now of learning. I think it will calm down a bit because there's a proliferation of information. I mean, how much information do you want? There are people who are spending their entire lives on Internet, Googling this, Googling that. It's fun. I've done it, and now and then I do it, but I also see why I do it. It's to get away from what I really have to do, take out the garbage. Oh, I, th- I think I'll look into silence in Mongolia. But my wife cuts through that silence in Mongolia, right? She just don't want to take out the garbage. That's what it is. Okay, and she's right. Okay. Uh, I knew they were silent anyway because the Russian people told us that. Um, so I, the challenge for us is not to reject even our thoughts. Thoughts of, It's an, a, a beautiful, extraordinary aspect of being human, the fact that the mind uh, can think and it can become rational and logical, and it can imagine, and it can have a memory, and so forth. And it's created so many extraordinary, beautiful things. See what I mean? <laughs> I think that's extremely rude. What? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really care. You know, I, I was hoping they were there so that we could play, but all right. It's nice and pleasant. It's a fun thing. Okay. Uh, so it's not more information that we need. 
That isn't going to do it. You know, when I was growing up, the myth was, it wasn't thought of as a myth then, is that science would fix all problems. Have you looked around? It hasn't. In fact, through the uh, explosion, literally, that's the best word for it, of weaponry, the potential of the human race wiping itself out and destroying the, the planet is beyond, it's staggering. How many nuclear weapons does a country need to have? Okay, so it's a two, but it's not the problem. It's the problem isn't science or technology. It's the human mind which uses it. War is not the problem. Nuclear weapons are not the problem. They're a byproduct of a distorted mind. And we're all in this together. You can't just point to, oh, yeah, it's this politician's problem. It's the North Korean, you know, they have crazy. Because we all have greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha was arguing or teaching this way thousands of years ago. Now, so we're all together have created a society that is wanting, wanting, wanting. Now, some of it we've wanted more than we could afford, and you see what happens. That's a, a lack of wisdom. We've been living in an imbalanced way, and eventually imbalance doesn't work. It, it falls apart and has to correct itself. So now everyone is struggling to correct it. So what I'm saying is that, again, I'm not trying to politicize what we're doing, uh, although there are people who, are, and I think I'm happy they are, are trying to take the message of what I'm talking about and globalize it to help. The Dalai Lama is one of them. I'm all for it. But I feel my job is more in the trenches, like in World War I, to just work with individual yogis to try to, look, get your mind. You want peace in the world? Start with yourself. You know, it, all the marching and all the parading and all, it's good to do that. Social change, I'm all for it. But if you don't also work, in other words, there's an inner liberation, which if that doesn't happen, no matter what uh, changes, social changes we make, that even are positive, all the conferences and treaties, it's not going to amount to much. It, we have, the evidence is overwhelming that it doesn't. We don't, we don't learn from history. What I've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. Although when I went through college, I kept being told, we study history by history professors, of course. Sorry, anyone here? From here? <laughs> uh, we study history in order to uh, learn from history and not repeat our mistakes. Mm. Uh, I, so my conclusion is it took me a number of years to say, that's not correct. Because what I've learned is we don't learn from our mistakes. So then I could waste my life blaming historians, you know, are blaming this view. But then I have to, in this practice, we always bring it back to ourselves. Well, am I doing that? Am I doing that? Have I learned from, my, from suffering? Have I learned, developed any wisdom uh, from being mindful? And not just being mindful, but being interested to see what is beneficial and what is destructive. And then uh, really caring about the quality of, our, of life, your life, my life, that's why you're here. I have to assume that. And doing something about it. And all the tools are here in meditation. They're here to basically clarify the mind, to help the mind become more clear. Whether it's breath or med, there's endless techniques. But all of them are to make the mind a fit instrument so it can see clearly and accurately and be steady and strong. Stronger than all the conditionings that are thousands of years old modified each generation over and over again that we haven't examined. And we don't realize we're being lived by our conditioning. And the practice is not to condemn or uh, annihilate or try to annihilate thought and our history. It's more to see it 
And a lot of what our practice is is learning the art of self-observation. It's crucial. Well, then the art of observation comes first. If you can't see clearly, you're going to be looking through distorted lenses. And the learning that comes from that is going to be limited. So the vipassana is insight is seen clearly. Insight, it's uh, discriminative, discriminative wisdom is what... And then when the scene gets very clear, very still, when the mind becomes really still, and it's not limited to just, I, I better, I think I'll close with this, but when it becomes really still, it's really clear uh, because you disappear. Now, this may lose some of the beginners. There's a beautiful Chinese poet, a great poet, Li Po, said, um, we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain is left. Well, what I'll explain it for those of you who are not used to this way of looking at, at life. It doesn't mean that Li Po left. It meant his mind's machinery stopped churning out images of, that's a tree, it's beautiful, I'm so happy to be here, I can write a poem about it, the poem be remembered for, you know, go on forever, it'll be in collections. Uh, what it means is, the observer, the, self the ego as observer falls away. And there's just seeing, just clear seeing. And in that seeing, that's the direction practice goes in. Okay, now, one last thing about stillness, because there's a certain confusion, in my opinion. There's a certain uh, stillness or silence of the mind that comes about through concentration practice. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's called the jhanas. Some of you probably have heard absorption practice. That is, for example, you can take the breath or any other one object, and there's a whole science of how to, in other words, you come back to that and you go deeper and deeper and deeper inside using that object as the vehicle. Let's say breath, which is I know the most about. I've had some training in this. And as you get deeper, you come to extraordinary peace and joy. You start to tap a bit of what's in there. It's very, very still. And you go deeper and deeper, but you're narrowly focused. It's exclusive. In other words, you're f narrowing down the focus of the mind and going deep inside. And is that have, does that have value? Of course it does. Because uh, when you come out of that, as inevitably you do, the mind is a little stronger. There's more inspiration about, the, uh, about doing this stuff. But it's also very dangerous because people get it, all of us, get attached to the joys that come from a concentrated mind. And then if you have a teacher who's been there or a friend who's been there, they'll, you'll see that you're suffering because you're trying to hold. You can suffer as much from meditation as about any sex, money, power, fame. It's a dynamic that's content-free. If you're grasping and clinging, clinging through, through a craving, whatever it is that you create, uh, it will arise and pass away. It's just a law. And so you will suffer unless you learn how to live in that world of uncertainty, which is not going to go, isn't going away. Now, here's, so, but it's a, a wonderful kind of stillness. Ajahn Chah, uh, an extraordinary forest master from Thailand who's influenced the teaching in this center a lot, um, certainly mine. I learned a lot from him. Uh, he called it stillness with delusion. Now, why is that stillness with delusion? Because you're not dealing with your afflictions, with those toxins. What you're doing is they go into abeyance temporarily. You become so absorbed that you tap that mind temporarily 
there's no, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing threatening because they're in the, it's like you put a rock over them and they don't go, they're not gone. Now maybe they've gotten a little weaker because you're not nourishing them by identifying with them again and again and again. But so you're in a place temporarily, which is wonderful, but it's very easy to overestimate that. Can it have value on our certain people uh, gifted in that direction? They probably should use that. Definitely. I'm not down on it, but it's very easy to misuse it. So that kind of stillness, we'll call it for the moment stillness with delusion. Delusion meaning that you haven't, uh, you're not wising up. You're just feeling good. You've gotten very concentrated, and that's what we really want. If we said, look, you're just coming here to become wiser and kind and kinder, I'd be talking to myself right now. We're all here to feel good. We want to feel good. We want bliss. We want inner, there are all kinds of things we want which we think we don't have. I mean, which we don't have. Okay. Uh, that, but the emphasis here is on understanding. Uh, at the beginning with it's conceptual. But really, it finally, the clear seeing is the understanding. As the mind gets clearer, life becomes differs. In other words, uh, as we watch this unfolding, okay, now the second kind of stillness, is, which is really what I'm going to be talking about, or doing my best to, because in a certain way it's ridiculous, this project. Here I am going to throw out a lot of words about a place where words are not allowed in. So what can you say about stillness? Well, I'm going to say a bit, but at a certain, the Buddha didn't say much. He just said the original nature of the mind is radiant. He didn't say a whole lot. The Tibetans say a bit more. I've had other teachers say a bit more, but um, perhaps a little bit more than that can be said. But so you understand its value so that you can do the practice, which enables you to see it's a very practical thing. You're tapping a capacity that you have that's latent, but not uh, not uh, developed. It's in us. It's, it's, it's not something you d- – it's not even developed. That's the wrong word for it. What we're doing is brainwashing, washing away – uh, we're taking the power out of a lot of our habit energy, a lot of tendencies of living that don't work. They've proven themselves to produce suffering. And the practice is designed to help you learn from that. Can you see that when you do this, you get that? It hurts. Then why do you keep doing it again and again and again? I can't help myself. Well, that's probably true for many human beings. They don't have an or they either try to suppress it Will you drown in it? Will you try to explain it away intellectually? The tool that the Buddha left for us is to see it clearly. And in the seeing, really understand what's going on so that the understanding is at a deeper level than conceptual. So it's bone deep. It goes right into the heart so that the learning then is much more, it's more, it's easier to translate that into action than if it's just you read it and then you try to live what you've been told is a good way to live. Well, that produces suffering. So don't, don't do that. Uh, the practice is really getting to know yourself and to see uh, maybe countless people have already gotten to know suffering and the cause of it, psychological. Uh, but you haven't, nothing personal, I haven't. So the practice is designed to help us in so many ways, through support, through techniques, etc. Uh, finally, it ends up there's no technique. It's very beautiful. Uh, because the stillness I'm talking about is awareness. Finally, you'll see we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. If you're new to this, uh, if you decide that you really have a commitment to this past, we have a formal ceremony we do, I think, three or four times a year. 
and that's fine, but that's just like any ceremony. It has limited power. It can be helpful for you. You might feel all kinds of nice things about it. It's a place of belonging. It gives you inspiration. On one level, it's the Buddha as a person, historical person. And, and if you read the teachings and the life of the Buddha, it's very inspiring that some one human being who walked this planet could see so much and also do something about it. And that we still can do, it's been passed on to us, protected. Okay? But then it gets deeper and deeper. Finally, you'll see that the the real refuge is awareness. Because everything else is conditioned. It's coming and going, coming and going. Finally, you see that's that's who you are. And then how to express that through your particular equipment. Each one of us is very different. Uh, someone's musicals, a third person's a, sci- a second a scientist, someone else likes to uh, paint, whatever it is, someone else likes to cook or dance. So we're tapping, the, our, it's sometimes called the original mind or the original nature. No language is great about it, but um, it's awareness itself. But then learning how to bring that clarity uh, into daily life, just our life just as it is. Now, that's the kind of stillness that is not concentration because we've been developing it and looking at the stuff that is, not, that is unwise. In other words, so much wisdom comes out of seeing foolishness. It's not like deciding, I think I'll become a wise person. It's nice, you can make a vow. I vow to be the New Year's, I'm going to become a wise and kind person. Yeah, people have been doing that forever, too. New Year's resolution. I never will be right. Um, It's a good start. It's putting an idea on your agenda. But finally, uh, you may see that finally awareness in and of itself, but it's not what you think of as mindfulness when you begin, because that is something that we're constructing, and, and it is ego still. It has to be. We're beginning, and it's ego disguised as an observer, as a yogi. Do, you know, learning these skills, it's a new skill. We're not so good at it. Uh, we want to be good at it. And little by little, that sense of separateness starts to, uh, to dissolve, wither away. And you find what's left is what's always been there. Okay, in, from here on in, I'll review a little bit and then keep developing and going deeper. But that's essentially... So this is a different kind of stillness than, let's say, having living in a quiet neighborhood. That's good, too. But, the, look, you can live in a quiet neighborhood, have uh, washing machines that make no sound, refrigerators make no sound, decide not to have TV and all those, and still be tormented. We know that. Well, I'll just make a lot of money. Then I won't be tormented. We know that's not true. How about if I'm the most famous person in the world? How about if I'm the greatest artist in the world? It doesn't mean that art or that even money is bad. Money is just green energy. We just don't know what, how to use it. Okay, so the, the challenge is, uh, here one of our challenges is how to live in an age of information, sometimes called that, uh, and yet learn how to find a place that's prior to all these computers and uh, iBook and iFace and, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> your face and in your face, uh, uh, and live using our mind and thought, which is a beautiful gift that humans have. And use, but also learning we, this capacity for silence has tremendous power. That part, I'm, I hope to be able to hint at some of why 
this word silence is inadequate, why emptiness is inadequate. Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> what was that, Helcom? Whatever. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> anyone here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay, those of you who are here for the very first time, are you also really new to, to this style of practice? Could I have a show of hands again? Okay, so the, the other, others who have not raised their hand, you've had meditation experience just elsewhere. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps a source of confusion. How many of you, or did any of you, come especially to hear a talk on uh, on this king? You did. Or you wouldn't be here otherwise. Oh, okay. I just want, anyone else? Just came especially for that. Zero. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> because that, um, that decision, that title, almost a year ago it was put in and on the on the internet uh, I changed it to engage stillness but I'll tell you what I'll see if I can smuggle him in a little bit <laughs> just uh, because what I'm talking about the beginnings of it and as we unfold this evening is so general such an underlying dimension that of course would include uh, it was basically about an overweight king uh, <clears throat> who was really overweight and, of course, when the Buddha got through with him, not only did he lose weight, but he wised up. So it was a bargain. You lose weight. If you do the practice, you can use the practice. So it's a new diet approach <laughs> because we don't have enough of them already. Uh, but it's really using wisdom. Um, that's really it. Maybe I don't have to go into it. <laughs> we'll see. Um, <clears throat> the title of Engaged Stillness came about through a, 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 an interaction with somebody who not, didn't know uh, the center very well, but got to find out that our teaching here is very concerned with uh, daily life and said, well, isn't that, that's engaged Buddhism. Uh, and it isn't. How many of you have heard of engaged Buddhism? A show of hands. Yeah. Um, that's bringing the Dharma actively into the world, and often it, it has a political uh, edge to it. That is, and it's not that I'm against that, it's just that I'm against it for here. Or certainly when I teach, and I'll give you the reason why. So I, in other words, in correcting him, I said, well, you might say I'm concerned with engaged stillness, but not engaged Buddhism. Um, when it gets, uh, see, I feel everyone should be welcome here. The Buddhist teaching is about human liberation. It's not about liberation only for those who vote for candidate X. Uh, and when the, uh, when the decision was made to invade Iraq, um, there was someone in our community who was very irate. There are a couple of people who sent notes to us saying that anyone, there are some people, uh, I guess in certain discussion groups, uh, voiced it. In other words, the original Sanskrit term, even that's just a word. Okay, enough. If you, um, it's good if you want to go home now, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.